Our job was to write anything that the Pope needed written in Latin. We forced ourselves every day to speak Latin, and I did fall in love with it. I did it for 10 years. Some of it's very repetitive. You can only think of so many ways to say X, Y, or Z, but that's the only place where you're actually asked to say something, X, Y, or Z in Latin. For that reason, I acquired skills that I'm convinced I never could have picked up anywhere else. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Daniel Gallagher from Cornell's Classics Department reflects on his decade of experience living and working as a Latin secretary in the Vatican and shares the many benefits of learning to speak and converse in a language that you may consider dead. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We welcome our colleague Daniel Gallagher to the podcast today. Dan is Ralph and Jean Kander's senior lecturer in Latin here at Cornell. He teaches conversational Latin and engages students with this ancient language in new and innovative ways. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Dan. Thank you, Angelica. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here. You spent almost a decade working at the Vatican, translating official documents, writing and speaking Latin every day. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that all came about, your path with languages and your love for Latin? Sure. It's somewhat of a long story that I can boil down to some key moments in my life. I did not grow up in a household that spent much time at all in foreign languages. My father spoke some German quite well, and I remember listening to him sometimes at the dinner table. Uh, he had served in the, uh, in the military in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I remember singing Latin hymns and Latin songs in choirs because it was a very musical family. And I fell in love with the sound of the language even before I knew what any of the words meant and how the language functioned. I didn't really ever dream as a, a child that I would have an opportunity to learn it. Mm -hmm. It was not offered in school, the schools that I went to. Not until college did I have the experience of starting to read authors, especially medieval authors, people like Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Anselm, philosophy and theology. These are things I got very interested in college. Hmm. And I started to realize that in order to understand them, I had to learn the Latin language. Yeah. And that was my impetus. There was really a direct interest in reading texts, understanding these authors. But again, I really didn't have an opportunity to study it in a way that I found to be engaging and fun. Yeah. So jumping ahead several years, I had the fortune of encountering a very dynamic and unique and effective teacher, Reginald Foster. When I studied for the priesthood in Rome, at the seminary in Rome, he was teaching Latin at that time, and he was quite well known for a unique method that, to put it in simple terms, he boils the language down to its basic elements, but also treats it as if it's a natural linguistic phenomenon. Huh. And I had never encountered Latin in that way. He made it come alive. He spoke Latin in class, not all the time, but... Um, for a good portion of the class, he would be speaking in Latin. He would encourage us to speak Latin. And he had a way of teaching 
Latin reading, so Latin reading comprehension, in a way that was, again, very distilled to basic elements that really struck a chord with me and inspired me to learn the language. I had learned German formally in, in high school and I've forgotten most of it. <laughs> and then I spoke Italian, I learned to speak Italian fluently by studying in Rome in the seminary, studying to become a Catholic priest. And that mm. is also where I encountered Latin in this new way, even though I probably had about two to three years of formal, but not so well taught Latin prior mm-hmm. to going to Rome. That's, that's amazing. So can you share with our listeners a little bit more about what it was like? I mean, you were actually immersed in Latin, right? Yes. Because you were, you were translating, you were speak. were you actually speaking Latin too while you were at the Yeah, Vatican? so what happened was I learned the language again for about five years studying for the priesthood um, and learned it quite well. I mean, I've spent a lot of time and uh, studying classical authors as well. I wanted to read as much Latin as I could, every time mm. period, every author. Um, and then I was ordained a Catholic priest, so I came back to the United States to serve because that's what I was preparing to do. And I taught Latin in the seminary. Well, lo and behold, after teaching a few years in the seminary, my bishop, who was my superior as a Catholic priest, he called me on the phone. It was the evening before Thanksgiving, and I was on my way home to enjoy Thanksgiving meal with my family, my siblings mm-hmm. and my parents. And he said, can you come to the office? And so I had to literally change directions in the car, and he told me that he had re- received this letter requesting my services at the Vatican in Rome. And again, I was already ordained a Catholic priest. I was teaching in the seminary. And it was came as a, quite a surprise, but um, that's how I ended up at the Vatican. And originally I was there as an English language, so to speak, expert. In other words, an English secretary writing speeches and writing yeah. letters in English. But um, my teacher, the one I just mentioned, Reginald Foster, who worked in the same office as a Latinist, he got sick, had to come back to the States, And they asked me to basically take his place while I was already there at the Vatican. So I was already working in the Vatican as an English secretary when I was transferred to the Latin section. Now, as far as speaking Latin, we did every day. So there are basically six of us on the average. I mean, five or six Latin secretaries because there's there's enough work to keep us busy. Our job was to write anything that the Pope needed written Mm -hmm. in Latin. And that includes a large range of documents. Um, he doesn't preach in Latin or, sp- or that often, um, almost never now. So there aren't a lot of public, so to speak, events that are going on in Latin. But he's always writing official documents, appointing new bishops, um, appointing ambassadors since Vatican City State is sovereign territory. All of this is done. These letters are done in Latin because that's the official language of Vatican City State. Um, in effect, or in practice, Italian has come to replace Latin as huh. the working language. So when we're speaking to one another in the Vatican, or when drafts are being written of documents, yeah. Italian is usually the language. But if it's an official document, at some point, it has to be translated into Latin. And that was our job. So okay. we were writing all kinds of letters in Latin, which was an entirely unique experience one that you really can't find, you know, to be able to do anywhere else. Yeah. And I did fall in love with it. I did it for 10 years and it did become rather tiresome and tedious after a while because you could, (laughs) some of it's very repetitive. You can only think of so many ways to say X, Y, or Z. Sure. But 
that's the only place where you're actually asked to say something <laughs> X, Y, or Z in Latin. Yeah. For that reason, I acquired skills that I'm convinced I never could have picked up anywhere else. So, but we did, I must say, we forced ourselves every day to speak Latin. So what we would do is we would have a break during the working day for tea. We'd sit around at the table and we would read some of our writing to one another so that we could hear it and mm-hmm. correct any mistakes that would be caught by the ear much more easily by the, than by the eye. But then we would push ourselves to talk about topics that we were not entirely comfortable with as far as the vocabulary goes in Latin. So yeah. the soccer game the previous evening, oh, yeah. or like a car accident somebody witnessed on the street, or uh, a decision, the financial decision by the Italian parliament, things that really kind of ha- had to make us stretch. And we sure. did that to, to keep the, the vocabulary sharp, mm-hmm. our Latin sharp, and we would do everything we could to stay in the language during the working day in Latin. And for that reason, it, it's an experience that, I mean, even in hindsight, I can't believe that I ever had, Yeah, and I'm doubtful that I would ever have it in the same way again. Outside mm-hmm. of that context, you just don't find a way to use Latin in that same way. That, that, is, that is so fascinating. Um, did you invent new words when you were talking about, you know, you just mentioned, you know, when you talk about politics or soccer? Yes, good question. So, yes, at times, although what is quite amazing is that, especially in the 1960s, um, at a time when, if we just take the Catholic Church, it was kind of like, catching up, so to speak, with modernity, uh, with, with modern movements and all of that, uh, the modern world, there was a an extreme effort to bring the Latin vocabulary up to date, so to speak, and to invent terms for computers, space exploration, greenhouse gases, I mean, all this stuff. And it was kind of a frenzy of activity that really caught the language up to par so that we honestly didn't have to invent many words. They were already invented and already Hmm. published in dictionaries. Um, One is called the Lexicon Recentis Latinitatis, so the Dictionary of Recent Latin. And all the words are there. Um, And anybody who's interested in speaking or writing Latin today, there are many dictionaries available to this. But there were some occasions when we did have to invent some words, but Hmm. they were very few. This is what's surprising. The language basically has the vocabulary artillery, for back of a better word, that mm-hmm. is needed. And you can say about anything. I have one example, which is not directly related to my work at the Vatican. I translated, as, as I was asked to translate, and it was fun to translate, uh, Jeff Kinney's Diary of a Wimpy Kid into Latin. So it's published <laughs> um, in, in Latin and in several other languages as nice. well. And it's sold very well. But there, so going through Gregory Hefley's life, I had never read the books before. Yeah. Uh, my nieces and nephews had. Um, and when I was asked to do it, I simply read the book to see if I thought it would be good in Latin. And I, I said, I think it would be. Um, in any case, of all that vocabulary, I only can think of, I think, one, maybe two words that I had to invent. In other words, I okay. could not find them in dictionary. One of them was heavy metal music. <laughs> so nobody had ever said heavy metal music because Gregory Hefley, the character in Diver of his brother, his older brother, listens to heavy metal music. And I was surprised I couldn't find it. So I thought of lots of different kinds of ways to say it. And the way I finally decided on was not like a super creative way, but... Um, uh, uh, musica gravis metallica or gravir metallica. So literally heavy yeah. metal music. And 
it was better than any other expression. But to do that, it's kind of a somewhat of a silly example, but it's actually you know rather serious. What I had to do was find out who first called it heavy metal music, and was there like some explanation for that term mm-hmm. that would allow me to say ah. I see, because in Latin, you could say this. So if you mm-hmm. know the origin of the word, you can often come up with the best way to say it. And Cicero did this with words, I mean, uh, you know, at times when, when words had to be invented. But it was, it was the New York Times article or something like that. I don't remember the group, but one of those early groups. And he was a journalist who first used the term. Huh. And he didn't mean anything by it other than that's what it sounded like, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is what we think of today. And so yeah. there was no other reason for me to translate it rather than um, uh, musica gravis metallica, uh, because that's, that's more or less, it, it literally translates what the heavy metal music is. But that's just one example of a f- very few occasions where all that other vocabulary for compact disc, stereo, headphones, huh. it exists. That vocabulary, okay. somebody had already invented it, and you can find it in dictionaries. And so at our, our, at our work at the Vatican as well, um, when we wrote a document on, so Pope Francis had that a document on the environment and climate change. Mm-hmm. All those gases, all those phenomena that pertain to um, global warming and all this stuff, all of that was already there somewhere to, you know, to, to find. So mm-hmm. surprisingly, even today, you rarely find yourself in a situation where you have to in, totally invent a word out of thin air. Yeah. Fascinating. I wasn't sure if, if Steppenwolf coined the term heavy Good question. metal. I, I would have suspected Steppenwolf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was not. In fact, but I, 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 my memory's not serving me. It was considerably later because people often say, oh yeah, they were the ones, Steppenwolf. This was a term used in the 70s at some point um, after Steppenwolf's, you know, days, whatever. And I, I, I wish I could remember. It, it probably a Google search should bring it up, but um, that the journalist was actually describing yeah. it. He had been at a concert. He had been in a concert. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. How did Cornell then get so lucky to lure you here? Good question. So, um, uh, let's see, it was 2016. I was at the Vatican. Several things were going on. One, I had been working in the Latin office for about 10 years, and it was a great experience. But after that length of time, I started to feel as if I wanted to, I was already teaching, but I wanted to share more of what I was learning about the language. Not so much to, to speak, although that, that's a skill that I like to, to teach students, but mm-hmm. it was the facility that came as a result of that, the facility that came with reading. I felt like after 10 years of speaking Latin that I could pick up Virgil or Horace or Ovid or Catullus or any of these authors, and I just had an easier time reading them. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And I thought that would be a great thing to share with students, even if they really are not interested in learning how to speak fluently, although many are, if they simply need to like read page after page for their doctoral dissertation, but they, they want to be able to do it with greater facility, yeah. I thought that would be great you know, to share that with them. So that was going on, and I didn't have much opportunity. Personally, too, I started to go through a period where um, I realized I had made a mistake. Um, quite frankly, it was in the lack of uh, family life, of a wife mm-hmm. and kids. And I'm now happily married with um, two, two children and one on the way. But uh, oh, so that led to a oh, thank you. Yeah, so number three, yeah, is due in January. But uh, so that led to a decision to go through the process, basically asking to be dispensed um, from my vows, my priestly mm-hmm. vows. But in doing that, I would have, which I knew, I had to leave the Vatican. I mean, most uh, uh, why? 
Maybe I didn't have to leave. But generally, not everybody who works in the Vatican is a priest or even religious. But generally, if that's what you're doing there, you know, it, it's uh, for good reason. They, you know, they don't like, uh, like sure. a, a change in life. And but any, as I say, I was really kind of looking for a change anyway, because part of that what was tied into that personal um, doubting and searching was this desire to go full time teaching. So what happened was I had been teaching with my colleague here, Professor Michael Fontaine and Rome summer programs. And we had a lot of Cornell students. Huh. And um, Mike, um, he I told him that I was going to be leaving the Vatican and the priesthood. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, I love Latin, but you know, what? and um, God bless him. He said, uh, well, uh, I think it'd be great to have you at Cornell huh. because we're starting to work in spoken Latin. And it was yeah. mostly due to Professor Fontaine to Mike that he started to experiment with it. Well, the other fortuitous thing is we had President Hunter Rawlings reigning at the time, himself a classicist, and um, he was interested. So they basically were the first ones and at that time the only ones to say, you know, we could use your skills. And I said, well, by all means, tell me more because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, you just can't go out with a resume like that and try to, even in classics programs, I'll be honest. And I don't want, and no way do I mean to disparage my classics colleagues at other schools, other universities, right? But that's, speaking Latin is not the first thing they're looking for usually, right? right? Classics department. But here at Cornell, to their credit, they saw value in being able to bring these skills to the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happened. So uh, they kind of created, so to speak, a lectureship Mm. for me to participate in. And I'd never been to Cornell. I did, I have to say, I had Cornell students in Rome, and I was always impressed with their willingness to be humble and to learn how to speak Latin, even if they had studied it for years. Cornell was, I don't know why, but they were exceptional. The students were in their... Um, sense of adventure hmm. when it came to language yeah. and sense of humility that's important in learning a language. You know, yeah. we, have to, we have to confront the fact that we can't express ourselves, right? We, we don't know how to say things and someone has to teach us and we have to mm-hmm. learn. Mm-hmm. And the, the Cornell students are wonderful. So I was very excited to come to Cornell because of the type of student that I had experienced in Rome and our programs there. Yeah. Um, and so I've been here now in my fourth year teaching spoken Latin. Uh, teaching lots of other things too, but yeah. everything I teach involves some element mm-hmm. of speaking and listening. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I mean, what a what a great story, and and what a what a find for Cornell. Um, how do students react to your approach or Cornell's approach of teaching ancient languages in a in a conversational and spoken way? What do they think when they first enter your classroom? So the reaction has been quite positive, and usually they come seeking not only my courses in convert, what's called convert, what we call conversational Latin here at Cornell, but there are students who come to Cornell precisely because they know that they have, they'll have the opportunity mm-hmm. to um, to speak Latin. So there, it's it's interesting to think about the reactions. So they come with great excitement if they were seeking out the opportunity to speak Latin. So if sure. they enrolled in one of the classes because they wanted to speak to come with great excitement. The reaction then goes to, well, it's kind of interesting, a little bit of disappointment because they want to, they think they're going to learn more quickly, right, yeah. than, they, than they would like. Um, we do learn quickly. I try to encourage them to do that. But I think all of us have that experience of learning a foreign language for the first time. 
And it's not long before I reach a point, oh, I wish I could say more. I only know how to say, you know, hello. And I had eggs for breakfast this morning, you know, <laughs> things. Um, so I push them through that because um, the reaction will reach a point. It could be after a week or it could be after a year or two yeah. years or more after speaking Latin. Why am I doing this? Right. And it's a good question. That kind of react. Why am I doing this? I ask myself that. Nobody else speaks this language. You know, why am I doing it? <laughs> the, the answer to that question, again, it, it brings me back to the whole reason I got into spoken Latin is because they'll become better readers yeah. uh, of an ancient language. An ancient language that's still very much alive, but it is dead in the sense that most of the work we do in the language is through texts, right? Um, so other reactions that I get, if they're not looking for spoken Latin and they just happen to enroll them in a course that wasn't supposed to be spoken Latin, they, those reactions vary too. It's kind of quizzical. Um, the, the reaction I'm hoping for, which I do get, is that they weren't initially interested, but now they're very excited because they see that there are a whole range of Latin abilities, meaning reading and writing, everything, is is enhanced by speaking and listening. So all of those skills, linguistic skills, reinforce one another. And it takes some time for them to reach the point to realize that. But when they do realize it, then they can't get enough of it. Even if they don't speak every day for an hour, they're engaging text in a living way. In other words, they're coming up with questions to ask Cicero or Caesar or something or Ovid, you know. Um, And then it becomes a lot of fun becomes a lot of fun to have that ability to actively form sentences and, and use the, the language. So the reaction has basically been good, but I will always, throughout my life, I know I am in a field that I will be constantly formulating explanations and apologies for, <laughs> you know, because it's not self-evident why anybody would want to do this. Yeah, and I, I accept that. In fact, I'm more aware of that now than I was 10 years ago when I thought, sure. who wouldn't want to speak Latin? And now I realize, wait a second, <laughs> who wants to speak Latin? You know? so. Well, my high school Latin teacher would probably agree with you that who, who doesn't want to speak Latin? Good. I mean, that, that, that's, we, <laughs> right, that, that's kind of what we want, I think. Um, but it, it's not easy to show people. In fact, the only way I can show people that there's value in it, honestly, especially to friends and colleagues who are linguists and who deal with ancient languages, is to show them the ability of those students who have taken a course to translate to not translate. In other words, just to read the text and instantly understand the meaning Mm -hmm. without going through any translation. Mm -hmm. It's just a show and tell approach. It's the only way that I can convey the value of what I call active, but really some people call spoken or conversational Latin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, uh, what are some other benefits of learning Latin uh, when teaching it through a conversational approach? So in addition to the benefits that come with Latin ability and Latin facility that's enhanced by speaking the language, students basically tell me that their thinking process changes. Hmm. Because when you speak Latin as a, again, a dead language, but not so much as a dead language, as a language that has a unique syntax, there's a th- the mind works in a different way. Yeah. And they find they can apply that to other things in life. Um, science majors are for are one of the biggest draws to my class. They, they, they come seeking mm-hmm. it. And I realize that they have something, a way of thinking, that they derive great enjoyment out of Latin as a language in comparison to other languages. So it involves some kind of cognitive skill or process 
that's different from modern languages. Yeah. Um, so there's a benefit. There's definitely a benefit. So Latin was my second language that I learned in school. We started with English in fifth grade, and then I added Latin in seventh grade. And I remember in my cohort, I was the only student who chose Latin over French as the second language. Mm. And um, I remember we would all still come together for all of our other um, school subjects. And when we did dictation and grammar work in German, I was able to, uh, you know, parse out sentences and I knew d the differences in cases because of Latin. Yeah. And I was the only one, I distinctly remember that I, I was the only student who aced that one test And all my peers who had taken French, they're like, well, I don't, what's the accusative case? What, 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 what does that even mean? And so I think Jacques. for me, yeah, right. <laughs> for me, Latin just gave me a foundation to understand my first language and then also any subsequent language that I yeah. learned. So I think I, I totally agree with you, Dan, that there is something cognitively, just how you, maybe how, how you process the language yeah, i don't know yeah. but i there's something yeah. else yeah there's something i want to add to that that's very interesting i've observed as well um and that is well here's an example at the vatican um the head of the office while i was there a wonderful italian franciscan uh speaks in beautiful italian but he had as a matter of principle he would not hire or request the that the latin office accept anyone who spoke Italian as a native language. And the ones that he admired most that he tried to get were German speakers. Now, this is interesting because whatever it is, uh, it might be the fact that you've got those cases or whatever, mm. but there are two things that go on. There is, there is definitely a, an analogous way in which the, 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 the cognitive process works in the German language and the Latin languages, in the Latin language. And having learned German and Latin, I, it, it, being a non-German speaker myself, but I see that my, my that's mm -hmm. the closest thing I get to the mind working in a certain way. But secondly, the language is so differently. So Latin is different vocabulary-wise and everything with German that you don't kind of like get sloppy with the confusion of Italian or Spanish with Latin because they're too close. Mm -hmm. And so really, when I go to international conferences and I've all spoken Latin, by far the most elegant and pure Latin speakers are German speakers, huh. <laughs> interestingly. Yeah. And that's in, it's invariably the case. Hmm. The, the most Ciceronian Latin speakers are native speakers of German. Now, some people say, is it just because they work hard, they studied early enough? I think those are all factors, but I do think there's something cognitive. And mm -hmm. it's, it is a way of thinking. It's not just the way we express ourselves with the tongue and the language, but there's a mental process that goes on that's somehow analogous between the two languages. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk a little bit more about the ways that you include area high school students in um, your love for Latin and in the conversational pieces? I've, I've been fortunate enough to see one of the plays that you staged where um, there were some high school students as well, which was really wonderful. Yes. So this was an exciting thing. We have a wonderful Latin teacher in town um, who is the wife of one of my colleagues, Alan Nussbaum. So Mrs. Nussbaum teaches at Ithaca High School. She is a fantastic Latinist and teacher. Um, and we got to know each other really the minute that I arrived in Ithaca here. And she was interested in collaborating a bit. We didn't know how to do it. Um, 
we actually continue to explore possibilities of maybe some high school students at least sitting in on some classes here at Cornell occasionally. But we did have an opportunity to rise when we put Seneca's Troides, Seneca's Trojan women in Latin, in the original Latin on stage. And Mrs. Nussbaum was more than excited to get her students involved. And so we got um, several involved in the chorus for that production. Nice. And it was such a great experience because, first of all, I think they were able to encounter some things that they would have otherwise had to had to have waited years to encounter mm-hmm. as far as Latin goes. Yeah. Um, also, I think for all of them, except one, they had no prior theater experience. Hmm. And so not only were they learning Latin, but the confidence to stand there oh, yeah. and, and speak Latin to basically deliver these wonderful choruses, these Latin choruses yeah. in meter. Yeah. Um, it was a great experience for them. So we hope nice. to continue to involve them in our productions but to be honest, um, Ithaca High is an example of a school that uh, it's great. They continue to offer Latin, but enrollment is not so great. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's lots of reasons for which that could be the case. But because um, it's not happening at every high school. But we're, there, there is a struggle there to get students, you know, interested in Latin as their foreign language rather than, than French or Spanish. Sure. Or well, hopefully this podcast will change all of that. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We'll take as many as want to come. Uh, the next production, we have some ideas. Unfortunately, things are still on hold. It's not out of the question. We put on a Latin play in the spring. We just have to see how the pandemic situation sure. goes. Yeah. Um, but when we do, whenever that is, there's no doubt that we'll take as many high school students as, as we as, as want to be involved. Wonderful. Uh, so where can our listeners learn more about your programs and resources for spoken Latin? Good question. I wish, and I need to actually work on a website, uh, and maybe even my, whether it's my personal webpage or something uh, at, uh, accessible through Cornell University. Um, right now, you can't find much, and again, it's my fault, I mean, on Cornell. You should be able to find a lot more. However, um, there, uh, anybody's welcome to contact me directly by email, phone, Um, which is all available on the website. Um, I also really encourage uh, the listeners to explore the internet um, because uh, whether they're Cornell's resources or someone else's there, there's an Mm ever-expanding pool of resources for spoken Latin. Great videos, um, audio, um, good courses that are involved, obviously now even more so. Yeah. the Padilla Institute continues to offer courses in spoken Latin, uh, which are all Zoom-based, basically internet-based. It's a, an institute, a nonprofit that I teach for. So again, Padilla Institute. Um, and they, there are other um, organizations out there as well. So people will be surprised when they start to open the door, they're going to find mm-hmm. many more opportunities than they thought were available if they're interested in spoken Latin. And the same thing is now happening for spoken Greek, believe it or not, ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, so those opportunities continue to expand as well. But really, um, I would encourage anybody listening to this, if you're interested in what we do at Cornell, whether you're considering coming here yourself or you have a child who's, who's come, considering coming here, just if you're interested in spoken Latin, I will have you in the classroom to just see what we do. be happy mm-hmm. to talk with you because if you're in the Ithaca area or close enough, Again, very, very few universities have anything like this. I mean, yeah. I think that there might be, there are three, if not four, I can think of in the United States that have 
um, a considerable element of conversational spoken or spoken Latin in the curriculum, and Cornell is, is one of them. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you for your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. What is that word? Good question. I'm going to go with sapientia in, in Latin, yes. and it's a word that probably doesn't take much to figure out what it means, at least initially, even if one doesn't speak Latin. But for me, it's the concept. And I find this concept coming up in Cicero and the medieval authors and all kinds of authors. There's something uh, about sapientia, which translates as wisdom, um, which embraces something more than just sheer knowledge. And I'm finding in my own experience, life experience, that however we define it, it's not only enough to know things. And even when it comes to languages, um, it's experience, it's community, it's um, relationship building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are not, you know, simple like cognitive facts. They're, they're things that we grow wise in, that we know that we need in order to become better human beings. So I would go with sapientia. I kind of use it as the one word that directs me and what I'm trying to accomplish, both academically, but also in life mm-hmm. and in relationships, that if we grow in wisdom, um, it, when the day we die you know, I think that we can say we've done pretty well. And that, that's what the ancients said. So I think that we, we have a lot to learn yeah. by perking up our ears whenever we hear them say the word sapientia, that there's something nice. important being discussed. Great. Well, Dan, gratias, TB. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Libentissime. You're most welcome. I enjoyed it. And um, spero ut vos omnes valeatis presertim in hoc tempore pestilentia. I hope everybody keeps well in this challenging times of the pandemic. We are back next week with three of our colleagues, Melina Ivanchikova and Matt Ouellette from the Center for Teaching Innovation and Julia Frizo, Senior Research Associate in Plant Biology. Hear more about their engaging online course titled Teaching and Learning in the Diverse Classroom. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.